This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 20th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. How policing is done in America ought to change, but almost any change that doesn't bring benefits to police, police departments, and police unions faces vigorous opposition. Norm Stamper, former Seattle police chief, is author of the new book To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police. We spoke last week. When the federal government collects data on how police do their jobs, they can't really demand uh, certain reporting of information from police agencies. They can ask for it, and there seems to be a great deal of resistance from police agencies to provide that kind of information on police-involved shootings, on uh, trying to delineate what kinds, uh, what was the nature of the engagement between a suspect uh, and the police. Where, where do you come down on that? Well, I, I, I would say that the federal government can, under court order, uh, uh, obviously accomplish that purpose of getting data from local law enforcement. But, it, but it's not a matter of policy that it's That's just correct. broadly reported. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And given that there are 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the country and, and, and that policies and procedures vary widely from one jurisdiction to the next, uh, you'll find some that are very willing to cooperate with the government, they understand, federal government, and they understand the value of having data that can inform policy decisions. Uh, but many don't, <clears throat> and some don't because of what you know, might charitably be called institutionalized laziness. I mean, it's sometimes hard work to, um, particularly in antiquated systems, to gather information that might be useful for analysis purposes. Well, and it's co- and it's costly. And it's costly. It costs a heck of a lot more money than I think most people realize. So, what what might we learn if that were policy? If 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 all local jurisdictions were required to not, submit not data, not necessarily required. If they if they did, if they just did, uh, you know. Anything that will help us uh, by way of trend analysis uh, to understand what has been, what is, what might be tomorrow. And if we're looking at, for example, use of force, um, particularly lethal force, uh, reflecting on controversial police shootings, it's very helpful to have data uh, about the various policies and procedures, the training uh, and supervision uh, of police officers who, after all, carry life and death authority on their hips. Congressman Tom Garrett is a Republican representing uh, Virginia, and he makes I think I think was a pretty novel argument, really. And it's unfortunately that unfortunate that it is a novel argument, which is, and he's a he's a former prosecutor, and he wants to end the federal prohibition on marijuana, and his argument for doing so is one. We're definitely not going to apply federal law across states that have legalized uh, marijuana for some purpose, either recreational or uh, medical. And out of respect for the rule of law, we ought to end the federal prohibition, which strikes me as an interesting uh, uh, argument to, as an appeal to the rule of law. I could not agree more uh, with that congressman. I think what's happened uh, in, in the name of crime fighting is this horrible distortion of what true crime fighting looks like. Violent crimes, predatory crimes, property crimes are what scare people. 
and cause them to change the way they live, to, to experience reduced property values, to curtail the activities of their kids in neighborhoods because of this fear of, of violent or predatory crime. Uh, and to focus uh, on marijuana enforcement uh, is, is just the, the height of, of um, foolishness and wastefulness. Also, I, I take the position, uh, I, I would describe it as a libertarian view, that whatever I elect to put into my body, uh, whatever that I choose to inject or ingest or inhale is my business, not the government's business. What I do under the influence of any of those substances, including alcohol, is the government's business if I'm jeopardizing the safety of others. If I'm driving impaired, if I'm furnishing to a child, uh, I shouldn't just be scolded. I should be made to feel the sanctions of criminal law. Now, uh, more broadly, though, if, if the argument that uh, Representative Garrett has made uh, is something that, that is broadly shared, what has the broader war on drugs done to the respect for the rule of law? Uh, it has tarnished, uh, deeply damaged respect for the law and tragically, from my point of view, law enforcement officers. When Richard Nixon famously proclaimed drugs, drug abuse, public enemy number one and declared all out war on them, he was really declaring war on his own people. Uh, and disproportionately young and, and of color and poor, uh, at the very people who historically have had the most troubled relationship with, with their local beat cops. So speaking as a, a, a cop of 34 years experience, uh, ex-cop of 34 years experience, uh, I want to see police officers experienced as helpful, as effective crime fighters going after those crimes that scare people and cause them to change the way they live. Uh, and treating people with courtesy and with respect and the like. But when we call them, in effect, the foot soldiers, and you don't fight a war without an enemy, and, and we know who the enemy is, you don't fight a war without propaganda. And for decades now, the American people have been fed a, a line from their government that they've uh, oftentimes, too many times, uh, just simply accepted, hook, line, and sinker. Now, you, you mentioned your experience. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, police chief of Seattle PD, um, you know, marijuana is legal there. The legal regime has changed quite a bit since uh, since you were police chief. So what was your experience there as, you know, an employee of the mayor yes. and somebody who wanted to advocate on behalf of uh, more rational policing and uh, being a critic of the drug war? Well, my mayor, uh, and I worked for two of them during my six years as, as police chief in that city, uh, more or less whispered support for my view, which was that we should end the drug war and we should invest those resources in, in other more uh, sensible and logical ways. But uh, it, it was the kind of support that I appreciated on a personal level. Uh, at the time, there were very few public officials who are advocating for any kind of a real change in U.S. drug laws. And I, the citizens of Seattle, this was three years after I retired, but certainly worthy of, of note, uh, decided through an initiative to make marijuana enforcement the lowest priority for both the police and the prosecutor. 
I, I took the view that uh, that should be our priority anyway, and that's essentially how I administered the department. We didn't build up narcotics. We de-emphasized marijuana. Uh, I do believe very strongly that a police chief or a law enforcement agency should not decide on its own what laws it's going to enforce. It, it is uh, anti-democratic. Uh, and it runs completely counter to the to the division of labor and responsibilities within within local government. When you talk about prioritizing enforcement, that obviously is a decision that ought to be made above the police chief. That should be uh, a uh, a political decision in many many ways. That's a decision made by elected people. Uh, but it's unavoidable for even the lowest level beat cop to make pretty clear decisions when he goes out to do his job that he's going to enforce this law and not this law. And maybe not by not enforcing one law, he actually gets a better handle uh, on and builds some actual trust in the community to enforce real uh, more substantive laws. I, I just think that's a really smart way to put it. If police officers are perceived as engaged in logical public safety crime-fighting work, uh, they're forging authentic partnerships, not PR cosmetic versions of partnerships with their communities, the trust will follow. If they're uh, treating people with dignity and respect, which all officers, of course, should be doing, uh, and I've openly acknowledged uh, in in, uh, the first of two books that I've written on these general topics, uh, that during my first year, I was abusive of the very people I had been hired to protect and serve. Um, and when I was uh, uh, slapped upside the head by a principal prosecutor, uh, that was that was my, uh, and I'll use this as a secular reference, but it was my come to Jesus moment. It was uh, a time when I thought I was doing the right thing. And I was doing precisely the wrong thing. I was violating the Constitution that I had sworn to uphold. And it seems like uh, if you think about law in in the way in, in applying law and enforcing law in the way that um, you and I just described, it almost calls into question the legitimacy, in a real sense, of a whole lot of laws that are on the books that police. Uh, if they're doing their a robotic job, are applying equally all the time in every instance. Yeah. And, and by the way, in law, police officers have enormous discretion. Uh, they are people who make decisions for a living. Uh, when you, you know, people say, well, you're wearing a uniform and you got guns and now you've got MRAPs and tanks and semi-automatic weapons and the like. Uh, you're kind of like a domestic soldier. No, 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 please, you know, expunge that from our vocabulary. Police officers, soldiers follow orders for a living, as they must. Police officers make decisions, and their life and death decisions, their peace and freedom decisions, they have enormous discretion, uh, and in some respects, too much. But it's vital, I think, that in the exercise of that discretion, they are listening to the community. They are listening to officials, as you put it earlier, higher than the police chief. There was a video uh, recently produced by a police agency in Florida 
um, in which you have this very stern-looking cop addressing the crowd, and he is surrounded by uh, men in, I believe, body armor, but maybe not. But certainly they're masked, and they're meant to look like very threatening people. And the, 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 the import of the message is, if you're a drug user or a drug dealer, we're, we're coming for you. What, how do you evaluate that kind of messaging? Because I see it a lot. There, there are a lot of, there's a lot of messaging from cops that really is meant to, you're, they want, it, it's almost as if they want people to be afraid of them. Well, um, I think they do. Uh, they, in effect, said that in the announcement. It was a sheriff in Lake County, Florida, who said, uh, we're coming for you. And uh, he's standing in the middle of four people, but for the word police on their black uniforms could look like ISIS. And that's much has been made of that in just the a few days since that, that video was uh, cut and distributed. So what you've got is the leader of that organization telling people in his community, including addicts, who, by the way, are sick. I mean, you know, that, that's not even by today's standards an enlightened view. It's just accepted. If you are addicted to a substance, be it tobacco or alcohol or any other substance, that's a form of illness. And rather than throwing people in jail who are ill, we need to be finding ways to help them. And I, I, I got to tell you, I was asked about that video yesterday in, in New York City on a, 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 another show. And... Uh, I was, it, it was shown, and then the question was, what do you think of that? Uh, and, and my response was, uh, I'm, I'm repelled by it. It is silly. It was done very dramatically when it was over to the sounds of very ominous background music. Uh, that sheriff and his minions uh, do a, an abrupt uh, uh, right face or left face, I've forgotten, and march off camera. Very dramatic. Well, are the, uh, are the drug dealers watching that? His constituents, the ones who voted for him, I suspect, are watching that, and he's pandering to them, he's appealing to them. And, of course, he is rattling sabers, and he has, in, in my view, with all due respect, uh, a very different analysis of what U.S. drug policy should look like. And it's, it's uh, interesting that some people sort of looked into the, the drug problem in that particular county, and it's fairly minor. It's very minor. What is the relationship like between prosecutors and the police? P- people don't uh, often think of prosecutors as police, but they are. They carry badges. Um, but what is that relationship like, and what, how ought it to be improved? I was talking with a friend and and colleague just earlier this morning uh, who was saying, well, what about the idea of moving prosecutors into the police station house so that they can help imbue uh, police officers, rank and file officers, supervisors and managers, for that matter, uh, with a a deeper appreciation of the Constitution of this country? Uh, and, and, And that is a conversation worth having. It does have merit. I personally oppose it at this time. Uh, you know, kind of in, in hopeful anticipation of major reforms in law enforcement before something uh, that fundamental were to change. But the, the role of the prosecutor in looking at police cases and police conduct, whether it's appropriate conduct or misconduct, 
uh, must be seen today as independent. Uh, they are officers of the court. Police officers are not. Uh, it, it is just vital that when looking at an arrest case that the right questions be asked. You have to satisfy reasonable suspicion for a stop. You have to satisfy probable cause for the arrest. You have to uh, gather, collect, and analyze evidence in, in a legally defensible fashion. It's just vital that our prosecutors, I think, today be very independent of police. And prosecutors, to the extent that they're violating the law, which is more common than we would like, um, often simply aren't held to account at all for it. Well, their, their work is not quite as conspicuous or obvious as the work of a uniformed police officer out there on the beat. You know, they're in the paneled offices <laughs> at the city attorney's office or the district attorney's office and, and, uh, and having consultation with their colleagues and consulting the law books digitally today, I'm sure. But they're, they're much more uh, behind the scenes, obviously, than police officers. And, and I mean, all things considered, they would prefer to have good cases being brought to them. But at the same time, there's uh, it, it sort of, I guess, suppose a natural inclination that even a bad case can be made into a one that works. One of the hardest things to talk about uh, coming from the police culture, uh, and particularly if I'm talking with police officers, uh, including some who are already retired, is this thing called test line. Uh, a, a number of notable attorneys on the national scene have used the term and talked about their experience with officers who raise their right hands and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and then lie on the stand, uh, saying that it's much, much more common than uh, any of us would like to believe, and most of us do believe. Police agencies uh, are represented by unions, and uh, the unions have been pushing for what they call the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. Um, I th think we're okay with one Bill of Rights, but what do you what do you think? One, police unions as an institution, people, conservatives, Republicans that I know, abhor unions, and somehow just don't seem to make that logical leap to, well, this is also a union, and may be introducing some of the same problems that we see with unions elsewhere. Uh, uh, and I, I should say, for the benefit of your audience, that I'm an unreconstituted lefty, uh, <laughs> from, uh, particularly when, when uh, considering the kind of work that I did for 34 years. Um, and I believe in unions. I believe in labor. Uh, I, I, I believe in individual responsibility. I believe in the rule of law. But... In writing about police unions, I have described them as pernicious, that they are in many cases an embarrassment to any efforts to achieve professionalization with, within law enforcement. They have developed this almost, um, maybe it is congenital, but they have developed this knee-jerk reaction to sensible reforms, sensible administrative policies, for example, uh, and have, have chosen to fight uh, sensible reform. Now, a, a, a very important uh, uh, footnote, one that I'd put neon uh, as, as a result of having listened to uh, public radio last week in, in my home state of Washington, driving down Interstate 5 to, to come onto this trip, 
I hear the president of the police union uh, in Seattle talking about the consent decree that is forcing change, de-escalation training, crisis intervention training, getting cops to slow down, getting cops to size up situations in their own safety interests as well as the interests of public safety. And this guy uh, was speaking in glowing terms about the consent decree. Uh, Sessions' attorney general has said, yeah, I think we need to look at those consent decrees because I think they're undermining public safety and they're, uh, and they're needlessly harming law enforcement. Uh, Mr. Sessions need to, needs to sit down, I think, with the president of the Seattle Police Officers Guild. And, and listen to what has been accomplished over the last five years. There has been a 60% reduction uh, in uh, excessive force, there, in, in use of force. Let me, let me move quickly to correct that. A 60% reduction in use of force, a major, as in dramatic drop in the number of shootings, use of baton, use of tasers, and... Uh, 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 what the chief described as a 10% decrease in crime so far this year. So it's not a function of depolicing. Officer injuries have leveled off uh, or, or dropped over this course of, of the consent decree. So now you've got, in effect, all stakeholders, uh, from, the, from the judge to the, to the you know, to local government to the federal government, uh, and many within the community saying this is a, a good deal. Seventy-seven percent of African Americans answered uh, favorable or highly favorable to the question uh, of, of asking, seeking their opinions of their local police department. That's a success story. It's a huge success story, and and it needs to be replicated. And and this this effort to shut down investigations of, into local allegations of, of local police misconduct, I think, is very misguided. Uh, you live in Washington. I do. Uh, I'm from Kentucky. I currently live in Virginia. But, um, you know, methamphetamine was always a, a substantial problem, and it's been a growing problem in, in Kentucky. Uh, in Washington and in Kentucky, opiates are a, a growing problem. How has Seattle dealt with that? And what other successes have you seen in police departments while at the same time respecting the rights of people also dealing with uh, it's a pretty substantial problem with opiate addiction and, yeah and, and i'm not saying and I, I belong to an organization that was uh, up until a couple of months ago uh, called law enforcement against prohibition and and we favored the legalization of all drugs uh, for adults uh, such that you could actually control those drugs. How do you control illicit commerce? So if you uh, set sensible regulations uh, and enforce those regulations, you begin to see some reductions. I also strongly favor prevention, education, and treatment. So some of the money being spent on enforcement of those statutes could, in fact, be applied there. You asked how Seattle's doing. Seattle is also, as with every other uh, region of the country, uh, caught up in this op opioid epidemic, as some have called it. That's under current law. That's under U.S. drug policy. Is there something about us that we can't see how colossal a failure the drug policy of this country has been? We've spent... 
almost a trillion and a half prosecuting it since Nixon's uh, famous statement in 71. Uh, every president since has signed on to the same war to prosecute that war vigorously. We've, uh, uh, we, we have seen tens of millions of our fellow Americans being incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses. And what do we have to show for it? <laughs> Drugs are more readily available at lower prices and higher levels of potency than ever before. So the fundamental change that has to take place, I think, is in how we think about it in the first place and whether we've got the imagination, the political uh, will and courage necessary to, to put an end to the drug war so that our police officers are not foot soldiers against their, their own people, an occupational army, as it were. Uh, years ago, and this this conversation has stuck with me for a very long time. I was talking to Billy Murphy, uh, a, what I like to say, a pricey criminal defense attorney in Baltimore, who's a, who's a really, uh, really smart, very interesting guy. And I asked him, what, what, you know, what was the moment in time when uh, the relationship between people and police broke down? And the inflection point that he identifies is uh, when cops stopped walking the beat. He says that was a huge uh, change, and it changed expectations on, in both the community and changed expectations uh, among cops. What do you think about that? Well, I, I, I love Billy. I mean, we've been on panels together, and <clears throat> I think we see eye to eye on most things. Uh, I think there may be a slight tendency to romanticize the good old days of the, of the friendly beat cop on the corner. Uh, systemic corruption was was really endemic to the to the culture in many jurisdictions across the country. Uh, excessive force went unchecked on the part of many uh, departments. Failure of supervision, failure of leadership, failure of policies, and, and the like. But he did, I think, in making that statement, capture something that is vital for us to understand, and that is if you have a cop on the beat who's known, he or she knows you, you know him or her, there's a relationship that has been allowed to build because the officer is not, you know, uh, motoring around in a 4,000-pound shell. That officer is out and about, visible and conspicuous in the community, and is seen as a part of and not apart from the community. The police in America belong to the people, not the other way around. And I'm afraid that what's happened uh, since the advent of the drug war, and certainly to, to Billy's point, the advent of, of, uh, of motorized patrol and the proliferation of motorized patrol. We've, we have seen officers draw further and further away from the communities that they have been hired to protect and serve. Norm Stamper is a former police chief from Seattle and author of the new book, To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.